Would you all pray with me? Father God, may the words uh, that we just sung ring true in our hearts because they are true. And Father, I don't know where each of us are in this moment today. I don't know the heartbreak or the fear. I don't know the shame or the guilt. I don't know what each of us are hoping for. But Father, you do. And your love for us tells us that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will be with us no matter what. And so today, would you come and be near? Would you be near to us? Would you speak so clearly what each of our hearts need to hear today in this moment? Father, it's crazy that you allow me to do this. And I know I can get in the way at times. And so I just surrender myself to you. I surrender my heart and my words, the things I've thought about and I've studied and I've prepared. I surrender all of it to you to be used however you so choose. But please, Father, by your Spirit, come and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm so glad it's all about grace. I started... uh, started saying that about 15 years ago when I first got into ministry as a job. And I, I really didn't want to do this job. I didn't. I didn't want ministry uh, to be my vocation. In fact, I had a professor at seminary who often said, if you make your living off your religion, you'll lose either your living or your religion. I didn't want this, and I fought a long time against this job, and and not necessarily for the reasons that you might think. I knew that I would fail a lot, and I knew I, I, I could cover up pretty well. I could put on a good show. I knew that most of my failures uh, would be behind the scenes that, that most people would never know about, but I knew I didn't have what it takes to do this work. I also knew that I wouldn't be as holy as I needed to be and that if I'm speaking really truthfully, there would be times I wouldn't even want to be as holy as I should want to be. I knew I would struggle with doubts. I've talked with you all about that a lot. Uh, I I am not immune to struggling with doubts. With, uh, with asking questions about whether or not this is even all true. I knew that if I did this kind of work, that my wife and my kids would, would see my hypocrisy. But I think most of all, the reason early on I ran away again and again and again from doing this as a job was I grew up in a very Christian home. And my parents loved Jesus and they did a great job of, of teaching us about Jesus and his love for us. But my whole world was kind of in a Christian bubble. I went to a church that had a school attached to it. I was part of that school. I mean, my whole life was Christian. I've told you this before too. I won awards for being a Christian. In my Christian high school, I won the Christian of the Year Award several times. And I should have brought my trophy because I know some of you don't believe me and, and I have a trophy to prove it. 
But see, one of the main reasons I ran away from this kind of work for so long is because I knew, because of my upbringing, because I knew of my track record, that I can so quickly and easily fall into a legalistic, moral-striving, performance-based faith that has nothing to do with Jesus. So, when I accepted uh, my first ministry job as a youth pastor, ironically, or, uh, or providentially maybe, uh, at the church that I grew up, I wanted, more than anything, for the students that I was working with and serving and, and, and building relationship with, I wanted them to know, no matter what no matter what passage of scripture I was teaching, no matter what issue I was trying to tackle, I wanted them to know that it was all about grace. That all the messages that the world inundates them with, that just lack grace, um, all, all the messages even inside the church, maybe the, the most devastating messages can come from self-righteous, uptight Christians. I wanted them to know that that's not Christianity, that if it's Christianity, it truly is all about grace. And so I started ending every single one of my talks, I'm so glad it's all about grace. Now, I don't always end my sermons that way, but y'all, it's what I'm thinking. And if I ever preach a sermon to y'all and I don't leave you with grace, I failed because that's really what it's all about. So what is it? What is grace? Do you have a definition? When you hear that word, what pops into your mind? When you, when you hear the word grace, what emotions come to the surface? Are you wary of it? Are you worried it will cause licentiousness or laziness? Do you smile? Do you, uh, do you sigh relief? When you hear the word grace, emotionally what happens to you? Do you immediately think about people who embody grace or who have been gracious to you? Do you think about the people who have abused grace? Do you think about the times that you've abused grace? When you hear the word grace, what comes to mind? When you think about extending grace to someone else, what does that look like for you? A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon where I quoted Titus 2.11. And it wasn't the main point of the sermon at all, but I haven't been able to stop thinking about that one verse. It just keeps coming to mind. I don't know if you've had this experience where you, you read a verse and it's like it won't let you go. It keeps hounding you. It keeps coming after you. It, it comes to mind at the most inconvenient times. Like, I'm just trying to cynically watch the presidential debate, you know? But that's what's happened. Titus 2.11 has gotten a hold of me, and it won't let me go. So that's the verse I want to talk about today. It's Titus 2.11, and here's what it says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This is God's word. So what is grace? I love what Philip Yancey says about grace. He says it's the last best word. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he makes the case that words spoil over time, that words tend to, uh, to kind of, the meaning of them tend to rot away with time. It's one of the reasons we need different translations of the Bible. 
you know, because, because sometimes uh, we, we have a different understanding of a word in our particular context. That's why preachers, and, and sometimes I say in the original language or in the Hebrew or the Greek, now I can't speak for all preachers, but I promise you, whenever I say that, I'm not showing off. I got a D in Greek, okay? So, so I, I, it's not a show-off thing. I'm just really good at reading commentators who love and understand Greek and conveying what they say about the original language. And it's important sometimes to go back to the original language because we can sometimes miss the meaning. Because words and their meaning rot away over time. The words that we read in the Bible are fluid, even though the Word of God is absolute and unchanging. So we need to examine word choice. In fact, when the commentator, when the translators were working on the King James Version of the Bible, uh, they wrestled with uh, what word to use to describe kind of uh, the highest form of love. And they settled on the word charity. Now today, I don't think we would settle on that word. That word isn't the word that comes to mind when you think of the highest form of love. In fact, when I hear the word charity, the first thing that comes to mind is, I don't want your charity, but grace. Grace is the one grand theological word that has not spoiled over time. As Yancey says, it is the last best word. Think about it. Think about the ways in which the word grace is used. In every form of the word, you can get a, a glimpse, a taste of the glory of its original meaning. A lot of people say grace before a meal, expressing that, that their daily bread is a gift from God. We're grateful when someone shows us kindness. We're gratified by good news, congratulated uh, when we ch achieve success. We're, gr we're, we're gracious when we host other people. When we're pleased with the service, we leave a gratuity. Yancey says in each of these uses, you hear the pang of childlike delight in the undeserved. Grace is undeserved. It can't be anything else. By definition, Grace is undeserved. Grace is candlesticks. One of my all-time favorite musicals is Les Miserables, or as us theater geeks like to call it, Les Mis, or as my dad calls it, the most expensive nap he's ever taken. Uh, but, but it's a musical adaptation of an epic novel by Victor Hugo. And it's a, it's a novel that is so grand in its scope. It spans over 50 years. There's dozens of different characters, all with very uh, intriguing and intense storylines that intersect with one another in some way. Uh, it deals with the beginnings of the French Revolution. It is a huge story. But, it's at, but at its heart, it's really a simple story about the power of candlesticks, about the power of grace. The story begins with a man by the name of Jean Valjean who is just getting out of a labor camp where he's been imprisoned for 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread for his starving family. And as he gets out of prison, uh, part of his parole is that everywhere he goes, he has to produce a, a document declaring himself as a criminal. Because of this, he's constantly turned away, uh, he's denied work, he's denied shelter. Uh, in, in, in many ways, he's in a worse situation than he ever was before he committed that first crime. But then he meets a priest, 
uh, and this priest invites him to his home to share a meal and to get a good night's rest. Um, and there's this really powerful moment uh, that's all you can almost miss it in the latest film version of 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 the of the story. Um, there's been lots of movies about it. The latest one uh, features Russell Crowe singing, and uh, if. If you haven't had an existential crisis in 2020, uh, it's on Netflix. You should watch it. His performance will 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 take you to a dark place. But uh, other than that, uh, there's this great scene in in the movie between this priest and Jean Valjean, and they're sitting down to dinner. And as the priest begins to pray, Jean Valjean is just devouring the food like a starving animal uh, before the prayer is given. And there's a couple other people who are at the table as well. And they are looking at this man with such contempt. And the priest prays and he says, thank you, God, for our honored guest. He doesn't see a criminal. He sees an honored guest. Now, this isn't the point I'm heading towards, but this is a bonus. Grace always sees things as they really are. So they have dinner, the priest goes to bed, Jean Valjean, desperate to not end up starving and on the streets again, decides to steal all the silver that he can find in the house. And he runs off in the middle of the night. Well, he's caught by the local police. The local police bring him back before the priest. When the police tell the priest that Jean Valjean has claimed that all this silver was a gift from him, immediately, without even missing a beat, the priest says, or rather sings, that is right. But my friend, you left so early, surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also, would you leave the best behind? You're welcome. And with that, the priest hands Jean Valjean two candlesticks. That's grace. It was completely undeserved, unearned. In fact, Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. And then the next three plus hours, you watch and you see the power of that moment. You see the power of candlesticks. You see the impact of grace on one person's life. And we're going to talk a little bit about that next week in week two of All About Grace. We're going to talk about uh, grace's ability to transform our lives. And we're going to reference back to Les Mis again. So your homework this week, it's on Netflix. You should watch Les Mis in preparation uh, for next week's sermon. But it all started with an act of grace, an undeserved act. Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. So going back to our verse, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace isn't just an idea. The word for appeared, epiphiano, is often used in Greek literature for the sudden arrival of a god or for when a hero arrives on the scene to rescue the people. In the Gospel of Luke, the same word, epiphiano, is used to describe Jesus' birth as, as God's light shining to those who are in darkness and who are in the shadow of death. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Titus, also would use this word when he wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.10, it says, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it 
it meaning grace, grace has now been revealed through the appearing, the epiphiano, of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Grace isn't just an idea. Grace is a historical reality. Grace is a person. Grace is Jesus. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, a historical man who physically walked the earth, who was crucified, died, and was buried, and who on the third day walked out of that tomb alive. Grace appeared. Grace is the hero of the story. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of trying so hard to be the hero in my own story. I know people, uh, you know, hate on fairy tales these days because of the whole, you know, waiting on Prince Charming, and I get it. We want agency in our stories. We we want to 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 be able to. to make decisions that, that move us along, and, uh, and especially when it comes to our daughters. I, I get it. We definitely want our daughters to feel empowered to make their own choices. We want them to know they don't have to sit around and wait for a man to rescue them. I totally get that. But the truth is, man or woman, we need rescue. We aren't the hero. We've all taken a bite out of the poison apple. Dudes, we're not Prince Charming. We're Snow White. And ladies, you know, it, it was Belle's love that was able to see past the, the gruesome exterior of the beast that was able to see who the beast really was. Again, remember, Grace always sees things as they really are. But y'all aren't Belle. You're the beast. You know, I think we've missed the point of fairy tales. Fairy tales haven't stood the test of time because of their depictions of gender, but because they're depictions of gospel. The gospel says we have a creator king who made us in his image as princes and princesses. But a serpent came along and and brought a curse that brought about death that in fact changed us, that deformed us, that changed us into selfish, adulterous, hard-hearted beings. But the gospel also says there was a faraway prince who knew who we really were and who left his kingdom in search of us. And in order to restore us to that which we've always been, princes and princesses of the Most High King, he became the beast that needed to be slain. See, on the cross... Jesus Christ, the true prince, the son of God, became our beastliness, our sin, so that you and I could become who we truly are. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him, through him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus' resurrection from the grave declares our happily forever after Grace is a person. Grace is the hero of our stories. Going back to Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God appeared, Pifiano, that offers salvation. I just told you the gospel. Told you the gospel through the story structure of fairy tales. But let me say it again. While we were guilty, while we were sinners, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. Jesus came and lived the life that you and I were always intended to live. He lived life perfectly 
so that he could die the death we deserve for our disobedience and our rebellion. Jesus trades places with us. Grace trades places with us. An exchange happens every time grace occurs. Grace doesn't just minimize. Grace doesn't just give you a pass from consequences. It takes your consequences. Because of Jesus, God loves you as if you were as beautiful as his perfect son. And he rewards you as if you were as great as Christ the Savior. I know it sounds like the stuff of fairy tales, but it's true. There's, there's a line in the, the movie Hook, uh, which stars Robin Williams as Peter Pan all grown up. And, and, and he's forgotten that he's Peter Pan. He's forgotten who he really is. Um, and he's, he's visiting Wendy who at this time is a very old lady. And she looks at him with a tear in her eye and she says, Peter, the stories are all true. Grace has appeared. The hero has come and he offers salvation. Jesus exchanges his life for ours. One of my Favorite things that I get to do here at Summit is be a part of the Why Believe class. This is a class uh, that uh, we do for, for kids who want to take the step of baptism because we want to make sure that they're making this choice on their own, that they understand the gospel, that they understand what it is that baptism signifies. And, and so we, we do this class, Why Believe? And you, you saw the baptism video last week and saw lots of kids uh, get baptized. Uh, but we do this thing in the class where we, we take two books and, uh, and we say, all right, you got two books here. Now imagine one book is your book. And inside your book is written everything you've ever thought or said or did. And then in the second book, You've got Jesus, and during his life, you've got every thought, every action, everything he ever did uh, in his second book. And actually, it would take several books to include all that Jesus did. Uh, at the end of the Gospel of John, John even says, this is the last line of his Gospel, he says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would need to be written. But for the sake of the illustration, Let's say everything Jesus ever did is in this book. So you have these two books here, right? Now, what if you lost your book? What if you left it somewhere? What if someone else found it? How would you feel? How would you feel if someone started reading it aloud at a party? My mentor, Steve Brown, says the way, uh, if, if he feels like, uh, you know, he doesn't have he doesn't have the congregation with him. He's not connecting with them. He says he knows the one thing that will connect with everyone is if he looks at them and he says, every single one of us has a secret that if it were revealed right now, out loud in public, we would leave the room and never come back. So let's imagine your book has it all in there, is lost. Well, the message of the gospel is this. On the cross... God exchanged the two book covers. At the cross, God put Jesus's name on the cover of your life. At the cross, Jesus, it's, it's, it's as if you take all the contents of, of your life and you put them inside the cover that has Jesus on it. 
So on the cross, Jesus experiences the full wrath of God against sin. Do you know what that means? It means that God got as angry at your sin as he will ever get 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on the cross. That thing you can't forgive yourself for, that, that addiction that you keep going back to, especially in this time, in this pandemic, um, that malicious gossip that you passed along, that Facebook post, that secret that no one but God knows about, he's not angry anymore. There's no anger left. In fact, because Jesus trade places with us on the cross, God's justice demands that he wrap our name around the book that is Jesus's life. He sees us as beautiful, beloved children. He cannot be any more delighted in us. Grace exchanges places with us. Grace is getting the opposite of what we deserve. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. Salvation to whom? To all people. Do you believe that? Do you believe grace for all? Gordon McDonald said, the world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, to feed the homeless, to heal the sick. The only thing the world cannot do, it cannot offer grace. Y'all, that's all we got. But it's what we all desperately need. You know, I, I was so worried about going into ministry because of my bent towards self-righteousness. But it's the same bent for all of us. Even people who aren't religious, even people who didn't grow up in a, in a Christian bubble, they're still working so hard to save themselves, to prove that they're good enough. Why are people working so hard at being woke? Why are people working so hard at, at being on the right side of history? It's the same reason they're try, the, the, the religious people are trying so hard to be holy. Because without grace, our only hope is getting it right. And getting it right every time. But what does Jesus offer? Jesus says, to all of you who are working so hard, to all of you who are burdened and weak and broken and messed up and you keep messing up again and again and again, to all of you who have had enough, to all of you who can't do it anymore, come to me and I will give you rest. I spent a lot of years running away from the church because, uh, because I found such little grace there. But I've come back because you can't find it anywhere else. When I uh, first started 
in ministry 15 years ago with that youth pastor job, there was a, a former student of the, the church that I was at. Um, he, had, he had graduated and gone off to college. And on occasion, he would come back on the weekends and uh, he had a great voice and, and he would often lead worship. Um, but I met him. I didn't know him before. Um, I met him because word had started getting out uh, that the way he was living in college uh, was counter uh, to kind of the standards of this church that I was a part of. And, uh, and he was asked, you know, to step down from, from leading in, in, in the singing. Um, and, and, and really, more than that, he was just kind of discarded. And uh, so he asked to meet with me, and I was so nervous because I didn't know him, but, you know, I was a representative of the church. And, uh, and so I went into that meeting really not knowing what was going to happen and I think it was maybe within the first six months of me even doing the job. And so I was brand new. And again, I told you, I didn't want it. I didn't want the job. Um, and I sat there and I really prepared myself to have him be really angry. Um, but he looked at me and he said, um, I'm, not, I'm not angry. He said, I, I know I'm messy and, and I don't even know what I think about all this. Um, and I know that it would be really awkward and, and uncomfortable for me to still be a part of the church. And then he said, but I wish I could be. And you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to say to him. And it's one of those conversations that I probably replayed that conversation a thousand times since then because I didn't really have a good answer. I wish I could have just given him candlesticks, right? Like what would it have looked like to in that moment give him candlesticks? We're still friends on Instagram. In fact, I, I, uh, he pops up a lot, uh, he posts a lot. Um, and, uh, and every time I see uh, a picture he's posting, most of them, Maybe this is a judgmental statement, but most of them seem as if he's been running further and further away. And my, my often initial reaction is to beat myself up about it. But here's the thing. We don't get grace. Grace gets us. Grace hugged the stink out of the prodigal son. It restored the betrayer Peter. It drove the hate and the racism out of the apostle Paul. And it continues to love and woo the reluctant pastor. Grace gets us. Grace is the last best word. So, who, uh, who needs you to give them the candlesticks? What's keeping you from doing that? As the church, it's all we got. It's the only thing we have to offer to a broken and hurting and self-righteous world. Or maybe a better question is, have you received them? 
or rather, have you received him? Jesus is grace. Grace is Jesus who, who offers salvation to all people. Jesus has never rejected anyone who comes to him, and he never will. And I'm so glad it's, you know, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you uh, that you loved the world so much that you would send him. Uh, you would send him to be our hero, to rescue us. You would send him to be the one who did everything that we needed done in order to stand before you blameless and without fear. Jesus, thank you for exchanging your life for mine. Thank you for taking the wrath of a holy God against the sin in my life so that I could live more fully as I truly am. As I could live more fully into the righteousness of God. And Father, I, I, I don't know. I don't know uh, who's watching this. Um, I wish I could see each person and, and know uh, that your spirit is doing something. But Father, if there's someone watching this uh, who doesn't really know you, maybe has been doing the religious thing, but never really understood that it is all about grace, Jesus, would you hound them? Just like this verse has hounded me, would you continue to pursue their heart in such a way that they can say yes? I don't have to keep trying so hard. I can just accept grace, an undeserved act. I can just accept the fact that you have exchanged your life for mine. And Father, I know many of us who are watching this know this truth, and we've heard this truth a hundred, maybe thousands of times. Father, help us be people who give that truth away. It's what we've got. It's what you have given us to give away. So Father, may we become a place known for giving away the candlesticks, for pointing people towards the only hope, the only hope that is grace, that is the person of grace, that is Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.